Last week I shared a little bit about, you know, how God confirmed in my life, you know, his call, his plan for me in ministry. And, and within that, I talked about, you know, leading up to that, he had been working on my heart for a while. He had, um, you know, he'd spoken through different areas, through his word, through circumstances, through other people. And um, one of the ways that he had been working on me was through, I was very active in the college ministry at at uh, my church, my home church at the time. I was also on staff there at the time uh, in the recreation ministry. And and uh, we were on our way, and some of, the, some of the guys in that ministry had been on me for a while and uh, just encouraging me to really pray about whether or not God was leading me to ministry. Some, uh, a few mentors, but some other guys my own age, they'd just really kind of been encouraging me for a while. Well, and uh, somewhere in maybe the fall of 1999, I believe it was my last year of college, we, we went on a mission trip to a drug rehabilitation center. Uh, it was in Georgia. And uh, we knew we were going to that trip to, uh, on that trip to help rebuild a floor in their dining hall and to lay some tile in their dining hall. We were just going to do some work for them, be there over the weekend. Um, and so um, they, again, these guys had kind of been on me for a while. And I don't know what started the conversation, but basically the entire ride to this, this facility, uh, several hours, they, they were on me practically the whole time. I mean, why, why haven't you, why, why aren't you going in the ministry? You need to be going, praying about going in the ministry. They, they just own me the whole time. And uh, to the point where I was like, okay, you know, guys, I, I'm praying about it. You know, it, it's enough's enough. I mean, it was all in good fun, but they were really, I mean, they just after me, after me, after me. So we get to this, this uh, facility and we know we're going to rebuild a floor. We know we're going to, to lay tile, but when we get there, we realized, we didn't know this, whoever organized the trip, there was a breakdown in communication, we realized that we were also supposed to lead two worship services. Didn't know it. Um, so here we are, just a bunch of college kids. Uh, you know, we didn't know, I mean, so we, we you know, like everything though, in college, you're, you're prepared to cram, right? The last minute, you study, whatever. So we, we figured we would um, go about this, planning this service, by getting in a group, and we basically just said, okay, who wants to lead the music? And anybody with any musical talent, somebody volunteered to do that. We had somebody that could play the piano, somebody that could sing, so we, we did that. And we, we, we handed out, like, okay, who's going to pray, that kind of thing. Well, nobody wanted to teach. Nobody. I mean, last minute, nobody wanted to teach. So what we did, we did it very, very spiritually. We drew straws. I may be casting lots. I don't know. Maybe that's what they did. It was similar. So we all, somebody cut a bunch of straws. And bear in mind, they had been on me all week, all, at least all day, about, about going in the ministry. And so we drew straws. And we cut straws. We got in a circle. It was about four or five of us guys. We drew straws. And sure enough, I drew the short straw. And immediately they were like, see, we told you, this is God telling you you're supposed to be in the ministry. And I'm like, I don't know if he would use drawing straws, but it was just another way that he was working on me and working on me and working on me. We had no idea we were going to be leading worship services, but even in that experience, God used it to show me one more step that this was where he was, he was leading me. It wasn't so much that event as it was those people in my life that I respected, God used them to speak to me, to speak truth to me. God had a plan. It wasn't, even in that, that setting, we didn't know God had planned to use us to lead worship services, but he had a plan, and it was different than what we thought. And we find if you walk with the Lord for any length of time, you're going to discover that he has a plan, and more times than not, most times, his plan is not going to match up with the way you think things should go. It will be better in the end, but it won't always be what we think it should be. Um, there are times, though, like me, in that instance, when I drew the short straw, I thought, anyone but me. <laughs> I'm not prepared to do this. I taught some, but not on a, on a level like that in front of that many people, at least um, in, in terms of delivering a message, a sermon. Um, and so there are times when we feel that way. And that's how I felt in that moment. And what we're going to see today is that is, is that is exactly how Moses feels. 
When God calls him, his response is, Lord, anyone but me, anyone but me, no, I'm not qualified, use someone else. In this series, my prayer, we're, we're talking about Moses and his journey of faith. My prayer is that we will see a guy that lived in a world with challenges very similar to the world we live in, who had shortcomings just like you and I do. We all have shortcomings. We all have faults who had challenges and didn't always respond properly to those challenges, by the way. But in spite of all of that, he made himself available to God, and God used him for his glory and for his kingdom. My prayer is that we will, like Moses, be willing to be used by God for his purpose, for his purposes. Put short, we are studying the life of Moses to experience God's spiritual principles, his way of doing things, so that we can live a spiritual life in him, so that we can live the life that God wants for us, the way that God wants for us, his purpose for his kingdom. We look at Moses' life, and we break it up into 40-year segments. The first 40 years, he was nursed by his mother, educated in Egypt. Then the second 40 years, he was nursed by solitude and educated in the desert by God. And then his last 40 years, he's nursed by trials and discouragement, challenges, and educated by the law, which was given to him by God. D.L. Moody said this. He said, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody, his second 40 years learning he was a nobody, and his last 40 years learning what God could do with a nobody. God humbled him, Moses submitted, and we see God used him for some pretty incredible things. We're moving now into the third phase, the last 40 years of Moses' life. And God speaks to him. He speaks in unexpected ways. And he speaks to Moses through a burning bush, a pretty unexpected circumstance, a pretty unexpected way. So now Moses has to choose, am I going to obey God or am I going to disobey God? And to be quite honest, his initial response is not good. His initial response is not his most shining moment. But when we look through this, even when we see Moses argue, we're going to look through his response. And hopefully, we'll see through his objections how we can learn to respond to God properly when he speaks to us and when he calls us to action. Because he is calling us to action daily. And there are going to be times where he calls us to action for specific reasons. So how will we respond? Well, let's look at Moses' objections. And maybe, again, we'll learn from his mistakes in this how to respond to God properly. Objection number one. He says, no one will believe me. Moses says, nobody's going to believe me. I don't want to go anybody but me. Nobody will believe me. Verse 1 of Exodus chapter 4 is where we'll begin this morning. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answers. He says, what if they don't believe me and, and will not obey, uh, will not, ob- not obey but, but say the Lord did not appear to you? He's saying, what if they don't believe what I say? What, what if they don't, they don't think I'm credible? Um, another way to say this is, what if they don't respect me? I mean, they didn't. Think about it. They didn't 40 years earlier when he attempted to start a revolution When he killed the Egyptian, they didn't respect him then. They didn't follow him then. So there's some cause for him to pause here. There's some reason for him to be concerned. Uh, None of us want to be embarrassed, do we? I I don't think any, maybe a few people who are weird, maybe, you know, like to be, nobody likes to be embarrassed, right? I mean, you know, we've all had that dream where we're standing in front of class, giving a report, and as the dream goes on, we realize we're in our underwear or something like that, you know, or, or you know, you're, you're, it's, it's the last day of school and, and you've got a final that day and you realize you've skipped class all semester. Anybody else have that dream? I have that dream all the time. Y'all school messes you up. All right. It stays with you forever. But what's the reason we, you know, that, that dream bothered us? We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be unprepared. We don't want people to think we're dumb. We don't want people to think that we don't know what we're talking about. And that's, that's so we can identify with Moses here. He, he just doesn't want to be embarrassed. I mean, think about it. He is in the desert right now, but at least he still has his dignity. I mean, you know, he, he's respected where he is. He's got a pretty cushy life. He's got a family. He's settled in. He's 80 years old. He's comfortable with what he's doing. A life change means, means challenges and possible failure, possible embarrassment, and he doesn't want to do that. 
But you have to remember, he's saying, what if they don't believe me? Go back to chapter 3, verse 18. God's already told him, the Israelites will believe you, and no, Pharaoh won't listen to you, but I'll force him to. So that question should be settled. If he really trusted God, the question of whether or not they're going to listen to him, God's already answered that. He's already told him more detail than he gives in a lot of instances. He's already told him what's going to happen, that the Israelites would trust him, would believe him, and that Pharaoh would be forced to. So Moses' problem, and hear this, Moses' problem really isn't that he's worried about whether or not the people will believe him. His problem is that he really doesn't believe God. That's the problem. His problem is that he really doesn't trust that God, what God has already said, is actually going to come true. This is a faith problem. It is Moses not willing to believe God. So his excuse is hypothetical. It's not only, hey, I don't know if they'll believe me. It's a, it's a what if. And folks, we can play the what if game all day long, right? What if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? What if, you know, what if, what if, what if? We can worry all day about things that may happen and could happen, Or we could focus on the promises of God and what we know he's called us to do. We know he's called us to be his representatives in the lost world. We know he's called us to worship. We know he's called us to study his word and spend time with him. There's a lot about our future that we don't know right now. There's a lot of what ifs out there. But do we trust God or not? Are we willing to follow him or not? That's the answer that Moses has. has, That's what he has to answer. So God responds, though. He's patient with Moses, and he responds. He gives him three signs, and we're going to look at those three signs together. He gives him three signs so that the people, so that Moses will believe him, and to show, here's how I'm going to convince the people. Here's how I'm going to speak to the people. Here's what I'm going to use. Sign number one, he says, what's in your hand? Throw it on the ground. It's his staff. He says, what's in your hand? And he tells him to throw his staff on the ground. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. The Lord asked him, what's in your hand? A staff, he replied. Then he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. Moses ran from it. But the Lord told him, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. That's where he would have lost to me, by the way. I don't like snakes. I can handle spiders. I can handle mice. I can handle bugs. But I guess maybe if God was speaking to me through a burning bush, I'd like to believe I would do it. But that's, that's a tough one right there. All right, but anyway, he says, Moses grabbed it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that, so they will believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So a snake to a staff to a snake, or (laughs) other way around, staff to a snake to a staff. What's the purpose here? Well, the, the snake was an Egyptian symbol of power, royal power specifically. So you kind of get it where God's going with this. From the Egyptian standpoint, he's saying he's more powerful than the Egyptians. For Moses, he's saying, Moses, the staff in your hand will become my staff. It will be my instrument of power. I will use that. I will work through you. So what does this mean? Well, for Egypt, the power of Egypt is under God's authority. But the same is true for Moses. He's saying, Moses, we're not talking about what you can or can't do here. We're talking about what I can do, and nobody's as powerful as me. The power of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the land, in the world at this time. I mean, he's saying, I am in control. I will take care of you. I will provide what you need. The next sign, he tells Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. He tells him to put his hand inside his cloak. Look at number four, or verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it was diseased, white as snow, it was leprous. He said, then he said, put your hand back inside your cloak. He put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you, God says, and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. So he transforms Moses' hand from clean to leprous to clean again. What he's saying is is that God controls. He's saying, I control not only am I more powerful than anyone, I also control sickness and death. He's giving him uh, a sign that he's in complete control and and also a sign of what's to come, right? He's going to show his power over sickness and death. But, but also, personally for Moses, the hand of Moses is going to become an instrument of God. Just like that staff, God will, use Moses, God will use Moses' hand as well. So what's the meaning here? Well, 
Moses, don't worry because not only am I more powerful than Egypt, the well-being of Egypt is under my authority as well. The well-being of Egypt and the Israelites, all individuals, is under the authority of God. He's saying, Moses, you don't have to worry. It's not about what you can or can't do. I'm in control. Their well-being is under my authority. And then he gives a third sign. He says, take some water from the Nile. Verse 9, take some water from the Nile. If they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on, the, on dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. So transformation from water to blood. The Nile River is Egypt's source of life and prosperity. They depended on it. And this transformation is foreshadowing the plagues that are to come. God is going to display his power mightily. Yes, Pharaoh is going to refuse to listen, but God is going to force him to listen. He will force Pharaoh into submission. The river becomes this river of life. This source of life for them becomes a river of death. And for Moses, the life of Egypt, the meaning here is that the life of Egypt is under the authority of God. So the power of Egypt is subject to his authority. The, the well-being, the, he, the health and wealth of Egypt is under God's authority. And the very life of Egypt is under God's authority. God is telling Moses something very simple. He's saying, Moses, I know you're worried, but I've got this. You don't need to worry. It's not about you. It's not about what you can or can't do. Are you qualified? No, you're not. But I am, and I can do this. You have to trust me. All you have to do is trust me. But Moses objects. And he continues his objection. Look at his second objection. Objection number two. He says, I'm a terrible talker. I can't talk. I'm not eloquent in speech. I'm a terrible talker. I'm not equipped because I won't know what to say. They won't believe me and I won't know what to say. Verse 10. Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent either in the past or recently or since you've been speaking to your servant because I am slow and hesitant in speech. I'm tongue-tied. I don't know what to say. I can't speak well. I know what I want to say, but I just can't say it. However you want to say it, this is Moses, what he's saying. I, I won't know. I'm not a good speaker. You know, it's funny, though. Moses doesn't really have a problem speaking, arguing with God right now, does he? I mean, obviously, knows <laughs> he's, he's pretty bold. But he said, I don't know what to say. But we've all been there, right? We've worried about what to say when we're confronted with those what-if scenarios. What if somebody asks me a question I don't know the answer to? You know, what if, you know, we're in that situation maybe where, you know, the Holy Spirit's speaking to us and we're talking to somebody and we know he's saying, hey, you know, represent the Lord in some way, share the gospel, uh, whatever, whatever it is, where we have an opportunity to speak for the Lord or to share Christ with somebody or to speak up and, and in love, speak for what's right when we know the discussion is about something that is, is not true to, to what the Bible says, but we chicken out because we're worried about what the other people are going to think. Or we're just too afraid that we won't have the words to say if we're asked a question that we don't know the answer to. Lord, I don't know what to say. I'm not good. I'm not trained. I'm not a preacher. I'm not whatever. We, we get scared, so we back off, and then we miss the opportunity that God gives us. And the truth is, Moses' objections here are not unfamiliar to us. I'm sure there are three main objections we see here that, that I think we've probably all been guilty of using at some point or another And when it comes to opportunities to share the gospel. What if they don't believe me? I mean, that's real, right? I could share Jesus, and they may not believe me. I mean, it's a possibility. I don't know what to say. I haven't been trained in faith, evangelism explosion, Romans Road, or whatever. I'm showing my age, but whatever. I haven't, been, I haven't received proper training. I don't know what to say. I haven't memorized the 10-point outline. I'm not confident. I don't know what to say. Well, all you have to do is share your story. I mean, if you'll share your story, people will be interested. By the way, more interested than any 10-point outline you may have memorized. If you'll share your story, you'll get people's attention. Another excuse, please send somebody else. There's got to be somebody more qualified than me. There's got to be somebody more educated. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. I'm not prepared. I'm not qualified. Think about the Apostle Paul, all right? When you hear his name, you probably think he was a mixture of maybe like Billy Graham and Ronald Reagan and whatever other good speaker, good communicator, all rolled up into one, right? He comes into town, you know, um, people, 
go crazy. He starts churches at the drop of the hat. He begins to speak, and people just flock to him, which he did speak to some large crowds. But you, you probably think of him as this incredibly gifted, articulate, eloquent speaker. When you hear Paul's name, you probably think that. Here's the problem, though. Paul was a great apostle, but he was not a great speaker. By his own words, 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. He himself said he was not a great speaker, but yet he influenced thousands for the, with the gospel. I mean, he, he wrote most of the New Testament. Now, why do you think it was that God chose people like Moses people like Paul who weren't great speakers to deliver his message. They were very effective, very effective at communicating the gospel. Why do you think he chose those types of people? Because he didn't want folks walking away from those meetings and worship services or whatever going, man, what a great speaker. He wanted people walking away from those meetings going, what a great savior. He wanted people to focus on himself and not the speaker. He wanted to show what he could do through those guys' weaknesses. He wanted to show what he could, he could do with somebody who was willing to be used by him, who was available. When people left Paul's meeting, they had met God. They had met sa the Savior. When Pharaoh left his encounters with Moses, he may have hardened his heart, but there was no doubt he had met. By the end, he knew he had encountered Almighty God. It wasn't Moses, it wasn't his ability, it wasn't his power, it was what God chose to do through him. Their faith, Moses, Paul, all the great men and women of faith who were used by God, their faith, the people that heard them, their faith became anchored to the rock of God's power, not the shifting sand of human personality. They weren't tied to a person, they were tied to their Savior. They, they knew they had encountered God, their lives had been changed. And they weren't, they weren't married to any individual. It wasn't a loyalty to the person. It was a loyalty to God. So the Lord's response to Moses here is he gives him some divine speech therapy. My wife is a speech therapist. Her tactics would probably be a little different. I'm sure if she were to share with you her, her, her tactics with children. But God gives him some divine speech therapy. Look at verse 11. Yahweh said to him, Who made the human mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. So who made the human mouth, God says. He says, I did. I mean, we know God made. He created us. And, and here's the thing. Here's the message for Moses. Here's the message for all of us. You are the way you are because God created you to be who you are. Are you imperfect? Are you flawed? Are you sinful? Yes, absolutely, we all are. We've got imperfections. We've got things that we don't like about ourselves, things that we do that displease God. But when it comes to who you are, the person you are, your personality, the gifts and abilities that God has given you, he's made you to be you, and there's nobody else like you. You may not be as good at someone else at speaking, but you may be good at something completely different. Or you may be a good speaker or whatever. God's given you abilities. And, and not only does he want to, you to, want to use your strengths, he also wants to work through your weaknesses because it's in those weaknesses that it's easy for us to depend on God. Because we know we can't do it. And the first step to working for the Lord, to serving God, is submission. We've got to be able to submit, to surrender to him. God says, now go, I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. He didn't need to worry. Moses didn't need to worry about whether or not Pharaoh would listen to him because God's already said, I'm going to force him to listen to you. You don't need to worry about that. You're right. You're going to speak to him. He's not going to listen, but I'm going to force him to listen. He doesn't need to worry about that. God knows your strengths and weaknesses. He knows my strengths and weaknesses. They are on full display, big screen, TV, large in front of him. He knows every single weakness you have. He knows your strengths, too. He knows you better than you know yourself. But even with all of those imperfections, even with all of those weaknesses, he still wants to use you. Because here's the secret. It's not about who you are on your own or what you are on the outside. It's about what he gives you. Let me see if I can explain to you what I mean here. How many of you like kiwi? Anybody like kiwi? 
I'll save one. If the, if the first one works, then you, you can fight for it afterwards, all right? But, you know, kiwi, you look at it on the outside, it's a little strange looking, right? I mean, it's furry. It's bumpy. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't look very appetizing, does it? And, you know, if you just think about the way it looks, coconuts that way, pineapples that way, but they're harder to cut, so I'm going to stick with the kiwi this morning. But if you just go on appearance, if you're thinking about a kiwi, you just go on appearance, if I'm picking out stuff based on how it looks, I'm going to skip right by this and go to something like an apple, something that looks more, more appetizing. So you have to, if you're going to get to the goodness of the kiwi, you got to get past the outer shell, right? you got to get past the outside. But man, if you do, you open it up, what's on the inside is pretty great. Sweet. Man, it's really good. Outside, man, I've seen people eat them whole. Have you ever seen people do that? That ain't right. I've seen it, though. <laughs> it's what's on the inside. And this one's pretty sweet. It's good. If I never got past the outside, I would never find out how good this really was. The same is true for us. We're Kiwi people, all right? Here's your lesson for today. You're a Kiwi person. It's not about who you are on the outside. Some of us are more attractive on the outside than others. I'm not going to name any names or say, I mean, you know, I, I look in the mirror every morning, I know. But it, <laughs> it's a way to highlight a point. It's not about who we are on the outside. It's not about your gifts and abilities. Your gifts and abilities are great, but you also have a lot of weaknesses. You also have a lot of furry spots, a lot of bumpy spots that are not attractive. It's not about who I am on my own. It's about what God is in me and what he gives me, his love, his grace, his mercy, his ability to see people the way he sees them, to love them the way that he loves them, compassion, enthusiasm, urgency, to spread the gospel. His power working in and through me, that's what makes us worthy. It's not me that makes me worthy. I am unworthy. It's him. It's his abilities working through me. So if you doubt your abilities, you're in good company because God says, if I send you, I'll equip you. When God sends you, he equips you with what you need to do his work. Moses was, I mean, all, all of the great men of faith struggled in some way with their worthiness, men and women alike, and, and Moses is no different. But here, here's the thing, though, here's what you got, this is the tough part, and admittedly so, God doesn't usually give wisdom on credit. I mean, he's not going to tell you everything you need to know right now when he calls you. He's going to call you to do something, and boy, it'd be great if back in March he gave us like a 10-point outline of everything to expect leading up through this pandemic, wouldn't it? But he doesn't do that. He calls you to action. He called me to ministry. He didn't tell me everything that was going to happen to me and my family and how all that was going to work out. Still don't know. I've got a lot ahead of me, hopefully. God usually doesn't give you a nine, ten-point outline of every detail. He calls you, and you know when he gives you the wisdom to know what to say and, 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 and how to say it? You know usually when he does that? He usually does it in the moment. It's walking in dependence on him. So how do I prepare myself? Well, I spend as much time in his word and with him as I can. He gives me that wisdom, and then he shows me how to use it, when to use it. He speaks to me in that moment, the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. He speaks through me. He works through me. And, and, and so the point that God is making to Moses, this assignment demands faith. Listen, folks, what God's calling us to do as a church, moving forward, Regardless of the details, there's one thing I can assure you, and that it demands faith. It's going to be bigger than our abilities. It's going to be bigger than what any of us can do on our own. God says, I want you to be willing to trust me. Moses, you've got to trust me. I've told you the big things. I've told you they're going to listen. I'm going to take care of this. I've shown you my power, but you've got to trust me. I want you to be able to step into that situation and rely on me. That's what the last 40 years of his life has been about, humbling him, showing him that he needs to depend on God. If we're going to step into the situation, if we are going to be used by God, we've got to depend on him. But Moses, he's like many of us, he's stubborn, and he continues to object. Objection number three, he just finally says, God, just send somebody else. I, mean, he's, I can't speak. They're not going to listen to me. Just, just send somebody else. He persists. 
Please, Lord, send somebody else. Verse 13. In other words, anyone but me, anybody has to be more qualified than I am. Have you ever just felt unqualified for a task that God gave you? I mean, any task. I mean, maybe you started a new job and you're thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But, but that's how it is with God. I mean, he's not going to call you to something you can do on your own because if he did that, why would you need him? You know, if, if, he, if it's going to be worthy of his glory, worthy of his name, it's going to have to be God-sized. It, it's going to have to be something that's bigger than you and I can do on our own. You know, we can come up with a million excuses, but the bottom line, we're saying what Moses is saying. Anybody but me, I, I, I'm not qualified. But God says, I know that, but you're still my choice. You know, beyond all human understanding and reasoning, God chooses to use fallible human beings to accomplish his purpose. It's one of the great mysteries of our faith, right? He doesn't need us. He, he spoke the world into existence. Yet he chooses to use us to advance his kingdom. You know, we think about it as a hindrance, I'm afraid, too many times. Oh, I just don't have time to do this. Lord, I can't speak. Anybody but me, I've got kids, I've got a job, I've got a full schedule. I just don't have time. But when we really think about the fact that the God of the universe is allowing us to be a part of his kingdom work, that should change the way we look at things. That should change the way we prioritize our life. That should change the way we respond when he calls us. God's saying, I choose you. My call is clear and my call is final. You can run, and I did it, okay? I wrestled. I've talked about my call to ministry. I wrestled for over a year with that, trying to, trying to convince God that I wasn't his man, that ministry was not for me. I'm not a natural leader. God, every excuse in the book I could think of. I wrestled and I wrestled and I wrestled, but I finally came to the realization that this was God's plan for my life, and if I did anything else, I would be unhappy, I would be discontent, and I would be disobedient. God said, this is my choice for you, and my call is final, because God's plan for you is perfect. Now, we may try to sidetrack that plan. We may complicate things. We may change some of the details. But overall, God has a plan for you, and that plan is perfect, and it's not going to change. You may change how you get to that final result, but his plan for you is perfect. And it's clear and it's final. And the same was true for Moses. Here's Moses' bottom line. The bottom line is that Moses just doesn't want to go. Moses' real problem isn't his qualifications, his ability to speak or not. His real problem is a heart problem. He doesn't want to obey. He just doesn't want to do it. God is clearly speaking to him, but he doesn't want to listen. A lot of times, our objections to God's plans are just smoke screens. They're just excuses. At the heart of it, we just don't want to obey. We don't want to listen to what God has to tell us. Now, I brought with me my pet ketchup packet. Yes, I have a pet ketchup packet. I've had it for all of about a day now. But we've become very close over the past day. So close that this ketchup packet will listen to what I tell it to do. Y'all believe me? Some of you said he's lost it. He's gone completely. All right, Mr. Ketchup Packet, Mr. Ketchup Packet, go back up. All right, Mr. Ketchup Packet, you're supposed to listen. All right, let's try this again. All right, Mr. Ketchup Packet, I swear I tried this before it started. <laughs> All right, Mr. Ketchup Packet, he's being ornery today. All right, here we go. All right, he's going, slowly but surely. All right, now, come on. Let's try it. All right, Mr. Ketchup Packet, are you ready? Don't, don't mess with me. All right, Mr. Ketchup Packet, go down. There you go. He's being a little ornery, but he... All right, you can go back up now. Go ahead. All right, Mr. Ketchup Packet, go, 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 go. All right, Mr. Ketchup Packet, hold on. Go back down again, Mr. Ketchup Packet. Are you listening? Go down. There he goes. All right, Mr. Ketchup Packet. All right, now, you can go back up. Eli likes it. He's just being ornery today. I don't know what his deal is. All right, let's see if we can get him back up. All right, let's see if it's a family thing. Maybe it's a family thing. All right, Gracie, 
Tell Mr. Ketchup Packet to go down. Maybe a little louder. Try it a little louder. He is being stubborn today, obviously. Timmy, you try it. Eli, you want to try? Tell him to go down. He is being stubborn. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see if it's them or if maybe he just really is my friend. Are you feeling better now? Are you ready to obey? Okay, Mr. Ketchup Packet, go down. Are you ready? Go down. I told you, he's my friend. All right, Mr. Ketchup, you can go back up again. All right, if you figured it out, don't tell anybody. Don't ruin it for everybody else. Now, the ketchup packet, he's still being ornery. was pretty ornery, but at the end of the day, he listened, right? At the end of the day, he did what I asked him to do. Now, if a ketchup packet can listen to me, surely we could listen to God, right? I mean, we can train animals. We've got a dog that will shake your hand, that will do tricks for a treat. We can train animals. We can even get our kids to listen to us sometimes. But how many times does God speak to us and we say, no, we know, excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. That's Moses' problem. Moses' bottom line isn't that he really is concerned about whether or not they're going to listen to him, whether or not he's got the ability to talk. His bottom line is that he really just doesn't trust God. He just doesn't believe what God's already told him he's going to do. So the question is, the, uh, the answer is, is, will I believe or will I not believe? Will I trust or will I not? Will I listen to what God tells me to do or am I going to continue in my unbelief or my persistent disobedience? God doesn't give up on him, though, thankfully. Look at the Lord's response in verse 14. God says his, his anger burns against Moses. The Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak. He's okay, you can't speak. Aaron's on his way. I know he can speak, and also he's on his way to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both of you, both you and him speak, and I will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will be your spokesman, and you will serve as God to him. And take his staff in, in your hand, and you will perform this staff. Take it in your hand, and you will perform miraculous signs with it. The Lord's angry with Moses. He's patient, but he finally, he's like, enough's enough. He's angry. He's slow to anger, but he does still get angry. And he will if we continue in disobedience. If we don't listen, eventually he's going to get angry. And he force, it forces us to ask, is my unbelief and disobedience, is that wearing God's patience out? All you have to do is go forward a few chapters and find out what happens if you persistently harden your heart. And God will eventually give you over to that. Even as a believer, if you continue to harden your heart to God's plan for your life, he, he's still going to accomplish his purpose. He may just choose to use somebody else, and you, get to miss, you miss out on the blessing of following him. It forces us to ask, is my unbelief and disobedience wearing out God's patience? So God asked Moses, isn't Aaron your brother coming? I'm sending him. If you won't speak, if you can't speak, he'll speak for you. He will, he'll do the talking. Even though he's angry, God still accommodates Moses. That's mercy. He, he, it's, it's amazing grace. Moses doesn't deserve this, but God accommodates him. One meth, message, two mouths to teach. Now, just think about this for a moment. I don't know this, but there's an argument to be made here that this would come back to bite Moses in the end. You know, God's plan was to use Moses. Because of his persistence, God says, okay, I'll give you Aaron. And Aaron becomes a thorn in Moses' side later on. It was Aaron that led the people to build that calf. He, he's the one that did that for them. And that came back to bite Moses in the end. So just maybe this is another lesson that God's plan is perfect just the way that it is. And I, I'm not going to change his plan I'm not going to keep him from accomplishing his purposes, but I can take detours along the way and cause myself some pain if I don't obey completely. We need to obey, and we need to obey instantaneously. The issue is obedience. Am I listening to the voice of God? And if I've heard it, am I willing to do what it says? Mr. Ketchup Packet, you were a little bit stubborn, but in the end, he did what I asked him to do. Even if I'm stubborn, even if I 
reject God's plan at first, which we've all done. I've shared with you how I've done that. Are we willing at the end of the day to submit? Because that's the only way we'll find out and experience God's good and pleasing and his perfect plan for us. Now, not too many months ago, we went to Washington, D.C., and I've been here several times, but we visited the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, right? The changing of the guards and the, the guarding of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It's a fascinating experience. And, and when you read about those guys and what they go through just to be able to do that, I mean, it's, it's amazing, the training and commitment level that's required. You know, it starts out, of course, you know, to, to be even eligible, you have to be in the 3rd Regiment, the old guard of the U.S. Army, and you have to volunteer for this service. Now, anybody in that regiment can volunteer. All it takes is knocking on the door um, of the, the guards' quarters at the amphitheater there. You can, you can volunteer, and then you fill out an application packet that includes recommendation letters and, and, and things like that. So anybody can, to start with, if you're in that, that regimen, you can volunteer. Um, but then the training begins, and, and there are physical requirements. You need to be around 5'10". It's not, you know, the one, I think the tallest guard was like 6'6", six, six, so it's, they're not locked into that. But generally, you need to be about 5'10", and uh, if you're a man, around 5'8 um, for females. So you've got to be pretty tall if you're a female. But again, there's, there's you know, if, if, if you're willing to go through the training, they're willing to bend a little bit on that. Um, and there's no, like, weight requirement, but these guards usually are pretty thin because of the work they do, the training that they do. Um, but once you apply, they look at your service record, and you, if you have a few infractions, as long as you've proven that you've learned from those mistakes, you can still qualify. You're going to have to explain them and what you learned from them and that sort of thing, but if you can prove that you've learned from it, then you, you can still qualify. You need a clean financial history, and you need uh, a supportive family. And a family is, a supportive family is vital because of the requirements you're going to need to support. And you don't need any other distractions. So if you got, you know, $100,000 worth of debt, they're probably going to look you over because you don't need any distractions. It's going to require a lot of your time and commitment. What's the training like? Well, it's hard, to say the least. There's, there's four stages. And the first part is basic instructions, you know, uniform prep, uh, walk sequence. If you've, if you've watched them, them march, you know, there's a sequence. There's behavioral assessments, things like that. They, they, these these t- initial tests are to see if you're willing to continue. And there's a really high success rate in passing that first round. But from that point, it gets harder and harder. And from that point on, it's self-paced. The training is self-paced. It takes anywhere from seven and a half to eight months. The quickest it's ever been done, uh, at least at the time of, of this, was uh, four months, which was amazing that somebody could do that. But during that time, the new men is what they're called. They can't watch TV. Um, they are in, in their quarters. They can't acknowledge jokes that other people tell. Um, they don't even speak to other guards unless they're spoken to, unless they've got a question about the training. They spend all their free time studying for for the tests that they have to go through to, to be able to do this. All their spare time, they train on performance usually at night when the cemetery is closed, but during the day when they're not on duty, they have 12-hour-a-day duty shifts, and then they train, they study otherwise. And they're tested on three different things on four different occasions, and each, each level gets harder and harder. They're tested on uniform, knowledge, and performance. Those are the three areas. And when it gets to the fourth and final level, it's the most intense. They're tested on their uniform. And nothing can be more, as, as far as where everything is on the uniform, nothing can be more than 1 64th of an inch out of place. Or you've, it's a, an infraction. You can only have two minor infractions, which that would be. And you can have no major infractions. So you've got to have your uniform perfect. Perfect. It's 1 64th of an inch. And there's 100 points of inspection. So you think about that. that. That requires a lot of time just to get your uniform ready. There's never been... If you're taking a test in school, this would mean a 97 would be a failing grade, okay? So there's never been a 100 given, but you have to be able to do that to pass. 100 points of inspection. Um, no more than two minor infractions. Then they're tested on knowledge. They're required to memorize 17-page a 17-page packet of information about the cemetery, and they have to write it down, and it has to be correct, including punctuation. 
17 pages written out. You cannot have more than 10 mistakes. And if you miss a comma on consecutive pages, I believe it's consecutive pages, that counts double. All right, so no more than 10 mistakes, 17 pages, write it out, including punctuation. You have to memorize all that. Then there's performance. There's over 200 points of inspection, and you aren't allowed any major infractions, only two minor. 200 points of inspection. It's foot placement, cadence. If you watch those guys, they step in this. I mean, there's a groove in the, in the, in the mat and in the concrete. They, they walk in the same, their feet land in the same spot. It's a, it's a cadence. It's how far they step, how much distance, um, and it's a 72 beats per minute cadence as they walk. All of this, they have to pass. The first level, pretty high percentage of passing. The final level, there's only a 10% pass rate. Only 10% of the people that volunteer end up actually becoming guards. And their commitments they make for the rest of their lives as a result of being this. Boy, that's a lot, isn't it? And it's pretty impressive that these guys would be willing to go through all this. Pretty impressive that they are able to complete all of that. A lot of, lot of steps, a lot of hoops to jump through. Man, aren't you glad you don't have to pass a test like that to be eligible to serve God? Now, all he asks is that you be available. We talked about this last week. All his requirement is, Lord, here I am, send me. That's it. You don't have to take a 100-point point, inspection test. You're going to grow, and you're going to develop, and you're going to become what he wants you to become. But to begin with, all he wants is for you to be available and for you to allow him to take you where you are and make you what he wants you to be. The reality is God doesn't expect perfection. He doesn't expect you to have all the answers or all the ability or even courage. <laughs> he doesn't expect you to, to, sp- to spell out every detail he doesn't expect you to, to meet some physical requirement or some mental uh, ability, some mental requirement to pass some test, IQ test. All he wants is for you to be available to him, to allow him to work through you. He just asks that you first take a step of faith, and that's the scary part. You've got to be able to step out and say, God, I'm willing to go, even though I don't have all the answers, even though I don't know exactly what you're going to do. Whatever... God asks you to do all he wants is for you to be available, but you got to be available. But let me encourage you. He's given you gifts and abilities. And yes, they're insufficient in the grand scheme of things. Some of us have great abilities. Some of us have abilities that we don't even know we have. But the challenge, the encouragement is to let God take whatever he's put in your hand and use it for his glory. He's given you a staff of some sort. There's something he wants to use you for. There's abilities that he's given you, some of which you haven't even learned. And if you're not a child of his, he's given you spiritual gifts you don't even know about yet. You've got to receive Christ in order to discover what those are. He's given you natural abilities that you've had your whole life that he wants to use for his glory. And I came across a prayer that says it and says it well, and we'll close with this. I think this would be a good prayer of commitment for all of us if we're willing to say it. Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing to receive what you give. I'm willing to lack what you withhold. I'm willing to relinquish what you take. If you tell me to give it up, I'll give it up. And I'm willing to suffer what you require. That's a nice little poem, catchy. But there's a lot in there. Am I really willing to receive whatever he wants me to have, whatever direction he leads me? Am I really really willing to give up whatever he wants me to give up, even if it's good? If I've got to set it aside to focus on him, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to give up what he doesn't want me to have? Am I willing to submit to him completely? And I'm will, am I willing to suffer if he calls me to do that? You know, we don't have all the answers, and we don't know all the steps, but we do know the God that we serve. And we know he's faithful. And we know he's able. Yes, I may not be, but he is. The question is, God is willing to use you. Are you willing to follow him? Am I willing to follow him? Let's spend a few moments in prayer and just talk to God about that for a moment. God's calling you. 
and me to be a part of what he's doing in this community, in our families, in this church, outside of this church. He's doing something. He's working. He's moving. And he wants us to be a part of that. Are you willing to be a part of that? If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the first step. You've got to trust him in faith and believe that he died for your sins and invite him to come into your life and to take over. If you know him, is there anything standing in the way of you going to Egypt, of you going to where God's called you? Maybe right out, Egypt may be right outside your front door. Not necessarily a location, but a place of ministry, a mission field. Is there anything standing in the way? And if so, what needs to happen for that to be removed? Father, we come to you and thank you that you've asked us to be a part of your work. It's a grand mystery that you would choose to use us. It's amazing that we could do the things that you've called us to do. And as we look back, those of us who have followed you, as we look back over our lives, we see things that you've done and we still can't explain some of them, but we know that you've worked through our lives in miraculous ways. We could go around this room for hours and share stories of your faithfulness and how you've come through. Yet many of us still struggle when you call us to new areas of ministry, to new acts of service. We give excuses, we play the what-if game, we doubt you, even though you've proved your faithfulness over and over again, and you, you just want us to make ourselves available. And, of course, that begins with salvation. We can't experience your plan and purpose for us unless we know you personally through Jesus Christ. Jesus, you died for our sins. You paid the price we could not pay, and we must invite you into our lives. You're not going to force yourself on us. We've got to invite you into our lives and submit to you and allow you to work in and through us. But it begins with that moment of belief, faith. You know, we we have to trust you for salvation. You're the only way. But once we do, we walk in faith every day. It requires surrender. It requires trust. Not having all of the details, but stepping out in faith, that crisis of belief where we ask ourselves, is it really, really going to happen? Is God really going to do what he says he's going to do? At the end of the day, we have to be willing to trust without having all of the evidence. But God, you are real and you are powerful. You are mighty and you are holy. There's nothing you can't do. There's nothing we can't do for you, but we have to be led by you. We have to submit. We have to do it your way, which many times is contrary to human logic and reason. But Lord, you are good and you are faithful and we can trust you. And I pray that we individually, those here, those at home, wherever we are listening to this, listening to your word, that we would commit to following you wherever you lead and wherever you call us to go. Father, you amaze me at the way you choose to work. I love you and I thank you for allowing me, my family, my church family to be a part of what you're doing. I pray that we wouldn't miss it. I pray that we would be completely and totally devoted to you. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.